If you're able, would you remain standing for a moment longer? And we're going to turn again to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 15 through 21 of Ephesians 5. And we're likely going to turn to Ephesians 5 a few more times before we're done with this chapter. So Ephesians 5, we're going to start at verse 15. This is the word of our Lord. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand that the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you will fall on fertile ground and that you produce many and much fruit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this uh, passage, in this portion of Ephesians 5, Paul is telling us that a person who has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ walks or lives wisely. We already saw that the Christian walks in love, that the Christian walks as children of light. And Paul then finishes that with the third walk, the third way that we live, that the Christian lives carefully, walks carefully, thoughtfully, in wisdom. And we saw last week that walking in wisdom means to live in practice according to the things that we know the Bible teaches. It's not complicated. We, we, the Bible says something, we live according to that. That's what wisdom is. And Paul helps us out with a, a non-exhaustive list of what it means to walk in wisdom here in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. I do not believe there is any exhaustive list in the New Testament, neither of sins nor of righteous behavior. Uh, the, these are like case laws given to us so that we can come up with an understanding of how God operates and what He expects, and then live out of those principles. And we can extrapolate from lists like this one here in Ephesians 5, 15-21, what God wants us to do in daily life. And here He tell, tells us that walking, we walk in wisdom by taking the opportunities that the Lord has given us to share the gospel with other people. We saw that last week. In verse 16, when he says, redeem the, redeem the time. That is, you make the most of the opportunities that God has given you as you proclaim the word of God to others. We also saw last week that we walk in wisdom by understanding the word of the Lord, by understanding the will of the Lord, and then living according to that. Today, we're going to try to understand that we walk in wisdom by not replacing the Holy Spirit with a substance. See that in verse 18 of chapter 5. And then in future times, Lord willing, we're going to see that we walk in wisdom by filling ourselves with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have in verses 18, the second half to verse 21. That we're filled with the Spirit by speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. By giving thanks always for all things. By submitting to one another in the fear of 
of Christ. So Paul walks us through this list, again, not exhaustive, so that we can understand the patterns and principles of, of walking wisdom, and then we can go out and apply those principles to the different situations of our lives. And notice that the major pattern we see in this list is that Wise living is others-oriented for the sake of Christ. If you look at the things that Paul says we're supposed to do, they always focus on other people, focusing on, focusing on Christ, focusing on other people around us. And we have to keep in mind then, as we walk carefully and thoughtfully, that a, a wise life is a life that's lived toward other people, has that other orientation in the life. And notice also that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explicitly covers all the bases, even those that are the, the, the things that are obvious. Uh, Paul does not leave out, does not just assume that everybody knows what he's talking about. And he follows this pattern of affirmations and denials, or put off and put ons here, when he says, not as fools, but wise. He didn't want to leave anything to, for people to guess. So he states the obvious, not as fools, but wise, not unwise, but understanding, not wine, but the spirit. And he covers all that. And so if you wonder sometimes why I'm so obvious when I say things, I think it's based on how the, the apostles and the scriptures themselves speak, not assuming that anything from uh, the audience. And this morning we'll consider the fact, and I mean that as a fact, not as an opinion, not as an interpretation, but a fact that you cannot walk in wisdom by replacing the Holy Spirit with a substance. And that substance can be licit, like alcohol or marijuana, or illicit, like cocaine, um, heroin, mushrooms, whatever. None of those things can replace what only the Spirit can do. We're going to be focusing on the first half of verse 18, where Paul says, "...and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation." This is not going to be a sermon about not drinking. Because if I told you not to drink, I'll be going against the scriptures. But it is a sermon about rely on the Spirit instead of substances. Rely on the Spirit instead of the things that God created. And I think, at least to me, a question that came to me as I was looking at this passage is, why is drunkenness here? Why does Paul use this particular sin here to contrast with being filled with the Spirit, because that's what he's doing. He's saying, don't do this. Instead, be filled or fill yourselves with the Spirit. Now, have you ever taken a quiz in which the answers are multiple choices, and the, 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 what you need to do is to mark the thing that's not uh, the same as the others? Now, what thing does, have, does not have anything in common with the others? And you have apples and oranges and mangoes and liver and onions and you have to mark which one is not the same as uh, the others that's how that's what drunkenness is here in this list why this and and not other sins and it's interesting that uh, commentaries the literature in general in this passage just passes over that and doesn't try to figure out why drunkenness here so it took a bit of right a reading to find a suggestion that makes sense so let me give you two reasons why Paul includes drunkenness here as what opposes being filled with the Spirit. One is that substance abuse, and that's what drunkenness is, is substance abuse has been and continues to be a serious problem in the world and in the church. It's not 
unique to today. It's been around for a long time, as a matter of fact. Right after the flood, the very first sin that's, that's labeled, the very first thing that the recorded sin of Noah is that he became uh, drunk. The Corinthian church, for example, struggled with this as well when they would come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, they would be out of control, and some people would drink all the wine and get drunk, while other people would get anything. And Paul says, let not be the case. Uh, that's not quite what's happening here in Ephesians, but you can see that that's not a unique thing to a particular church or a particular time. The idea of substance abuse or, or drunkenness is something that's prevalent today, both in the church and outside of the church. The second reason Paul has it here, and the more pertinent one, is, it, is that it was common among pagan religions to strive to achieve closeness with whatever God's were being worshipped by getting high. There was a religious exercise. They thought, how can I access the heavens? And they would say, okay, by using some sort of mind-altering substance so that I can have communion with God. So achieving ecstasy by being drunk with alcoholic beverages or high on hallucinogenic or mind-altering drugs was the ultimate way to commune with the gods. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the uh, Delphi oracles in ancient Greek literature. And there, there were a group of priestesses, or prophetesses, that would actually consume some sort of uh, a mind-altering substance. And then they would speak gibberish. And then they had these interpreters that would interpret whatever it is the gibberish was. And that would be the proclamation about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, by the way that Paul writes this command here in Ephesians 5.18... Uh, not to be drunk, we infer with a, a high degree of certainty that some in the Ephesian church were trying to continue that practice. That somehow they, they believe that if they got drunk or high, that they would um, be closer to God, that they could worship God better by doing that. And then let me also say, and it might be obvious to you, but you know, I preempted that by saying that Paul is obvious himself, so I'll be obvious, that when he says, don't be drunk with wine, wine represents all alcoholic beverages here. And I believe also all mind-altering drugs, and I'll try to show that in a future uh, sermon. So Paul's not saying, don't be drunk with wine, but vodka is okay. That's not the point that he is making here. The emphasis is on the drunkenness, not on the means to get there. And Paul says, drunkenness is the opposite of being filled with the Spirit. Because you cannot replace the Holy Spirit with a substance. You cannot expect that a substance will do for you what only the Holy Spirit of God can. Now, getting drunk will not bring you closer to God or solve anything in the long run. Getting drunk or high may help you escape your reality for that moment, and you may even feel that you're in your stupor or in your high, you're closer to God. But when, you're, when you sober up or when you come down from your high, reality will still be the same and there will likely be more destruction around you. So you cannot replace the Holy Spirit with a substance. Now it is appropriate for us to ask what being drunk is. Because it's difficult to, 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 to uh, define. And the worst person to ever define what drunkenness is is the drunk, right? The drunk, the drunk is never drunk. 
Uh, and so he's not the one that we're going to ask. But it's difficult to answer this question in absolute terms because it applied differently to different people. Alcohol works differently in different people. At the very least, however, the scriptures equate being drunk with an altered state of mind caused by alcohol. And as I said in a future sermon, I'll also try to show that to you that this applies to any mind-altering substance, that drunkenness is the prototypical addiction that stands for all other uh, substance abuse addictions there as well. But at the, at the peril of losing some of you, I will go ahead and try to give some sort of definition to what drunkenness is so we, we know what we're working with. You know what the legal definition of drunkenness is, right? Or at least uh, the word drunkenness is not used, but uh, you are impaired legally if your alcohol blood level is at 0.08%, right? You see on signs and so on. Uh, from that level on, you are legally impaired but I don't think that Paul had this legal definition in mind. I don't think Paul had blood alcohol levels and percentages in mind when he said this. Uh, the threshold for drunkenness in the Bible is actually higher than that. Because the Bible speaks of wine making your heart glad, which is uh, likely refers to the effect, the, the chemical effect of alcohol on your brain. I, I think there are better ways to def define drunkenness. And uh, what I'm going to give to you now is what uh, several experts in this area agree is drunkenness in general and then I'll show to you how the Bible also teaches that that's the case. So you're drunk, you might be drunk, and it sounds like a redneck joke, right? When you, start, you might be uh, but seriously <laughs> you might be drunk if you are becoming emotionally unstable and get easily excited or saddened. So you, your highs and lows are distancing uh, themselves. You might be drunk if you lose your coordination and have trouble making judgment calls and remembering things. You might be drunk if you have blurry vision and lose your balance. You might be drunk if you feel tired or drowsy. Those are all ways, physical ways, that you can uh, tell if you are drunk or not. Uh, experts tend to agree that there's a range in there between three and five drinks an hour. Uh, for men, it, it's when you're going to start seeing those, those things. And this description of drunkenness is equivalent to what Proverbs says. God says that in Proverbs. Uh, in Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35, I'm going to read it. It's a longer passage, so I ask you to pay attention to it. He says this, Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go into search of mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. You see there where the person is looking at the wine and, oh, it sparkles and it's swirling the cup and it's inviting me to come and indulge with it. Uh, you see there that it... Um, it, um, it's smooth and is attractive to the person. And in verse 34, it continues, Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. What is, what is the author of Proverbs referring to here? Here we have somebody who is not at the sea, but feels like you are in the midst of the sea. What's, what's, what is the picture that he's painting here? The, 
lack of balance. And he continues, or like one who lies at the top of the mast. So he now is not only in a boat in the sea, but you're at the highest point. The radius increase, what do you feel more? The oscillation rate also feels that way. And they, and they continue saying, so you're there, you're wavering, you're kind of stumbling around, and you're saying, hey, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. Where the consequences of life are not even getting to you. And then he concludes the description of the drunkard by his saying this, when shall I awake, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? With everything being destroyed in his life, with, with all these things going on, the only thought he can have is, when can I get drunk again? Nothing else matters. And that's what the drunkard is. And it's important that we realize that there's more to drunkenness than the chemical effects of alcohol on your brain or how many drinks you may have. So I don't want you to leave here saying, you know what, if I, leave, if I have less than five drinks an hour, an hour, I'll be okay. I'm not drunk. Because there's more than actually drinking that makes somebody a drunkard. There's a relationship with alcohol that is idolatrous. You're trying to get from the substance something that only God can give to you. You're willing to destroy everything in your life for that. No matter what that is. That substance, that drink, that shot, that whatever, that high that you want. Nothing else matters but that. And what is that? That's nothing more than religious worship. The most secular drunkard is worshiping something. And that something is whatever substance they're looking forward to. The drunkard is looking for in drunkenness... What only the Spirit of God can provide. Peace instead of anxiety. Forgetting problems instead of solving problems. Sleep. All these things are things that the Spirit gives. And people may feel better and closer to God in their drunkenness or when they are under the influence of mind-altering drugs. But that is a misguided feeling. So Paul says that while being filled with the Spirit results in an orientation toward others, drunkenness is utterly Selfish. Look at what it says again in verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Paul describes the act of being drunk as dissipation, which is not a word that we use very often. And it means behavior which shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. That's what drunkenness is. A behavior that shows lack of any thought to the consequences of your action or the interest of others. It also means a type of behavior that cannot be saved or redeemed. The word dissipation itself is a negation of the word saved. So that means that you cannot drink or get high for the glory of God. It is an impossibility. That behavior cannot be redeemed. And, and that's the word used to describe the way, the, of the, the way of life of the prodigal son. Remember the story of the prodigal son? That he got the money that was his inheritance. He wanted to spend while the father was still alive. And in Luke fifteen thirteen, we read, Now many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. That word reckless living is dissipation in Ephesians five eighteen. This is the kind of behavior that doesn't take into consideration anyone else but the one 
doing it. So if you're a drunkard, you're not a victim. You're not the one who has been let down by society. You're a selfish person who is drinking, who is destroying everything around you in an activity that cannot be redeemed. The activity itself cannot be redeemed or done for the glory of God. It, it absolutely does not think of the well-being of anyone else. And it is the opposite of being filled with the Spirit, which is demonstrated by an other's orientation in all that we do. And because drunkenness is inherently selfish, it will destroy relationships all around. It is virtually universal that the drunkard will have destroyed or will, de- or will destroy his family and his friends and everything, all relationships that are around him or around her. It's interesting that drunkenness is the only of the... The, the only major social sin that even in our culture today is not okay, right? Homosexuality now is okay. Transgenderism now is okay. It's actually celebrated. Drunkenness is the only one that continues to be a taboo because of the obvious effect it has on society and families. But is, we're, not, we're not willing to call it sin anymore, are we? Drunkenness is no longer sin. It's supposed to be a disease, and the drunkard cannot do anything about it. So I want to take you on a quick journey, and I'll try to make it quick, through the Bible, as it speaks about the drunkard or drunkenness. And I tell you, it's never spoken in terms of disease or of a good thing. It's always spoken in terms of sin. There's only one book of the Bible that talks about drunkenness as a good thing. Want to guess what that is? Scott, you can say because you're here for the first sermon. Yeah, it's a song of Solomon. And the drunkenness is being drunk with the love of your spouse. So it's not really talking about drunkenness as we're talking about it. But remember the, that incorrigible son, child that you're supposed to bring, at least in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, to be stoned at the gate. And I mean they're stoned by throwing of rocks at, at, at the person, not the kind of stoning. Uh, remember that there was the incorrigible son that would dishonor the parents? In Deuteronomy 21, 20, he's, he's described as the drunkard. Or in the Mosaic Covenant, if, if you're cur- uh, cursed by the covenant, you're described as a drunkard in Deuteronomy 29. The drunkard in Proverbs will come to poverty. And that's also a common thing that we see in, our, in, in life in general. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets, drunkenness is time and again used as a symbol of being cursed. Drunkenness is the result of not focusing on Christ, according to Jesus himself in Luke 21, verse 34. Drunkenness is the opposite of walking in obedience to God. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14 tells us that. Drunkenness is the work of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. No one can can say, I am a drunk for the glory of God. There's the Spirit of God that's working in me. That's why, that's why I'm high or whatever. Because drunkenness is listed as a work of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Drunkenness is a characteristic of those who are not watching and therefore not hoping in the return of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 and 8 says that those that are of the night get drunk at night and are not looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And then this is important 
because we don't think of it this way, but you also can misinterpret what I'm going to say. So I need you to pay close attention to this. Now, the drunkard will not be part of the kingdom of God. The drunkard will not be part of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says this, Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It's clear. It's not me, it's the Apostle Paul saying that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a problem with the thinking that drunkenness is a disease. And that's the problem with the AA, the Alcoholics Anonymous teaching, that once a drunkard, they call him an alcoholic, always a drunkard. Because a Christian may struggle with drunkenness, but that's not where his identity is. You either a drunkard or you're a Christian. And we have to get that clear in our minds. That does not mean we don't struggle, somebody doesn't struggle with drunkenness. But that's not his identity. His identity is in Christ. To say that you, you can, if you're, if you're a drunkard, you're going to be a drunkard for life, no matter what, is to say that you are, if you're a pornographer, you're a pornographer for life, and there's nothing you can do about it. That if you're a child abuser, you're a child abuser for life, and you can do anything about it, and we should just accept you that way. Believer, if you're in Christ, you're a Christian. You're not anything else but that. You've been redeemed. Paul says that. I read to you 1 Corinthians 6.10. Let me read 6.10 again with verse 11 attached to it, where it says, Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortions will inherit the kingdom of God. Remember how verse 11 goes? And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And that's true of anybody who's come to Christ. You were a sinner, but you came to Christ, and such were some of you. You've been washed. Brothers, sisters, you've been washed by the blood of Christ. You've been cleansed by that. That's who you are. Your sin does not characterize you. Christ does. And that's how sin no longer has dominion over us. Drunkenness is aligned with the unregenerate, not with the regenerate. Do not think that you can keep up your habit of getting drunk and keep Christ. It's one or the other. Because Christ is not going to share the throne of your heart with anything else. And it doesn't have to be drunkenness. It can be other sins. You're either Christ's or you are not. Those are the only options. And truly, if you want to experience the highs of Christ, the solution is not drugs, it's not substances. The solution is fill yourself with the Spirit. And this is a message that we don't hear and might sound discouraging to you. It might sound discouraging to people who have problem with drinking or getting drunk. But if the problem is sin, then the solution is the gospel. And we know what the gospel is. According to the New Testament, a pattern of drunkenness is not different than a pattern of sexual immorality or a pattern of thievery, or a pattern of greed, or a pattern of selfish ambition. The, the same kinds of sins, as the, the same other sins that we struggle, the, the resolution is Christ, so is drunkenness. So, 
drunkenness is not singled out as a sin that is worse than selfish ambition. But on the other hand, the New Testament has a clear theology of sickness, and yet it never includes drunkenness as a sickness. And when you look at it closely, drunkenness is a lordship issue. Drunkenness is a lordship issue. Who is your master? God or your desires? Do you desire God above all else, or do you desire something in creation more than you desire the Creator? And in this way, we all can relate to this issue because we struggle with lordship in other areas. So we can be sympathetic to the drunkard. The drunkard drinks to indulge their own desires, whether those desires are pleasure, freedom from pain, freedom from fear, forgetting, vengeance, etc., And if that's the issue, then the solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you might say, this is a hateful message. As a matter of fact, uh, somebody in my family told me this week, that this past week, that most of my views are returned to the dark ages. And that I'm not helping anybody by believing in these things. Won't this idea of drunkenness or alcoholism as sin marginalize addicts and just condemn them? Weren't you just going to be making them feel better about, worse about themselves by talking about, about sin? Well, the answer is this. They're already marginalized. We don't know what to do with the drunkard. We don't know what to do with the addict. They already pushed the margins anyway of society, of the church, of families. Right? Remember, you know, a lot of families have that uncle. You know, that, that one uncle that nobody talks about and don't want them in the parties, and if they come, we try to you know, just keep them outside. They're already marginalized. This view of drunkenness is actually very freeing because it tells us what we all struggle, that we all struggle with desires that war within us, even if we can't relate to drunkenness, we can relate to the idea of this, this war for our hearts. But somebody might say, aren't you concerned that uh, the drunkard will get stuck in guilt if we talk about sin? Do you think the drunkard doesn't feel guilty already? Do you think that when he sobers up, he's not aware of the destruction he caused? Do you think that the, the drug addict, when he comes down from his high, he's not already feeling guilt? Why do you think, what, what do you think is one of the motivations for the next hit, for the next binge? but knowing all the things that he did or she did during his last stupor. The friend's job is to point them to the one who forgives, the one who liberates, the one who loves, and the one who empowers them to get out from under the dominion of sin and follow Jesus Christ. When you talk about drunkenness as sin, sin should take us right up to the cross And for every time we take a look at the sin, we take ten looks at Jesus Christ. So as you face your own struggle with drunkenness or substance abuse, is it difficult to see the spiritual core of of drunkenness? Are you still struggling to see that? Well, let me ask you, ask yourself the following questions. While you struggle with your drunkenness, Why you struggle with your addiction? Is it ever accomplished by the fear of the Lord? I'm going to get drunk today because 
my fear of the Lord, my reverence for Him, my desire to honor Him is great. And that's why I'm going to do it today. I'm going to take a hit of Heron today because I'm just in awe of God. Or I'm going to smoke a joint today because my life is dominated by the Spirit of God and smoking this joint just is going to demonstrate how in love I am with Christ. Did you ever have, did you ever have a keen sense of the presence and the holiness of God when you struggled with the aftermath of getting drunk? Have you ever come, uh, come out of your stupor and become um, sober and said, God was glorified in that experience. When my wife and my husband was destroyed, when my kids were abused, when my, I drove my friends away, God was glorified in that. Did you ever have a sense that you were spiritually growing in repentance, faith, and obedience while indulging in drunkenness? Now, when we have a disease, we can still be growing in the knowledge of Christ. But addictions are incompatible with spiritual growth. And let me finish with this. And this is true not just for those that are struggling with drunkenness, but any one of us who struggle with sin. Do you feel hopeless at times? Do you feel joyless? Sadly, there's a lot of that in the Church of Jesus Christ. If you think that the knowledge of your sinfulness will intensify these problems, consider the example of the biblical writers. Facing their sinfulness was hard and sometimes painful. But when confession of sin was linked to the knowledge of forgiveness of sins, hope and joy were the result. In Psalm 130, the psalmist is in the deepest depths of misery. Is that as low as you can get? His despair was such that he could feel death even more than life. He was a, a dead person walking as far as despair was concerned. To bring him out of the pit, the Lord brought to his mind his great forgiveness. And the psalmist realized this. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, and you that you may be feared. If you struggle with drunkenness, there is forgiveness for you. If you struggle with addiction, there is forgiveness for you. God does not want your perfection. God wants you to come to Him knowing that you're a sinner. Knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ lived His life for you. That He died the death you deserved and was risen from the dead to declare that salvation is for sinners such like you. And even as a, even as a believer, if you're struggling with a life-dominating sin, there is forgiveness in God. If you're a believer, God doesn't love you any less because you're struggling with a life-dominating sin. He loves us the same love that sent His only begotten Son to the cross to die for you. And that's where the power to deliver you from the, the dominance of that sin in your life. Turn to Christ. Don't, don't waste your drunkenness, let's say, to use a John Piper uh, word. Don't waste your drunkenness. Come to Christ. Believe in Him. Receive His forgiveness. Be filled by His Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are God who speaks to us. And sometimes speaks, you speak about hard things, counter-cultural things. Father, we pray that you would help us to receive your word and to live it out. Help us to believe in what you say for us in Jesus' name. Amen.